You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. You're now tuned into the Pod Awful channel. Pod Awful. Bi-quarterly women's social club. Dazed and convicted. Pool party radio. Show King. The Devil's Advocate. The Projection Booth. Awful Flips. Pod Awful. Nothing in your education or experience can have prepared you for this film. Alejandro Jodorowsky's The Holy Mountain. The Holy Mountain is a film completely outside the entire tradition of motion picture art. It is outside the tradition of modern theater. a film outside the tradition of criticism and review. to the projection booth i am your spiritual guru mike white joining me is my co-host mr rob st mary remember it's not about the altitude it's about the attitude also along for our journey is mr steven scarlata hello this week we are talking about the holy mountain la montaña sagrada the 1973 film from alejandro jodorowsky written directed and starring jodorowsky the film tells the tale of a thief played by horatio salinas with a striking resemblance to jesus who becomes a student of the alchemist he and eight other initiates go on a quest for the holy mountain a place of spiritual purity sounds simple right the movie is all that and so much more. It's laden with symbols and doesn't shy away from surrealistic images. By the way, this film is about as old as I am, so we're going to be going into the spoiler zone. 
deal with it. If you haven't seen Holy Mountain, you need to go check it out right now. So we are going to try our best to unravel the mysteries of this glorious film, though I don't know if any one of us is up to the task, so maybe the three of us working together, we can try to uncover some sort of glimmer of meaning with this film. So Stephen, as our guest, when was the first time you saw Holy Mountain, and what did you think? Actually, I saw Santa Sangari first, and it took me some time to find this video. Miraculously, I actually found it at a video store down in Santa Monica called a video store named Desire. It was like one of those awesome video stores that was just packed with videos, and it was tiny. I just asked a guy there one day if he had any Jodorowsky films, and the next day when I walked in, he tapped me on the shoulder with Holy Mountain on VHS. And it was, you know, like a fake clamshell, and it wasn't really a real VHS tape. But I brought it home that night, and I dubbed it immediately and started watching it. But I made the mistake of kind of watching it too late at night. And, you know, and Jodorowsky does mention this was another one of those films that he wanted to make sacred and change mankind and have LSD type uh, visuals to it. And I got to say, the first time I watched it, I had like literally a bad trip. Because just most likely is because the quality wasn't that great, but the sound was there. And that droning sound, there was something about it that was really disturbing me. And I I, I watched it really late at night, so I was kind of falling in and out of sleep. But I kept waking up to people screaming, which happens quite a bit in this film. And it just kind of freaked me out. Eventually, I I returned the tape the next day, and, and I watched it like a week later. And then immediately... It wasn't as disturbing as the first time, but I, I kind of I started I started getting hypnotized by it, and it became one of those films that here and there I would just throw on just to watch, just to see if I can figure something out about it. I saw this around the time that I saw El Topo, and it was on a um, bootleg VHS, probably like what Stephen got, and I'm willing to bet it may have been. I think it was like a Japanese laser disc or something, a real bad dub, because I remember El Topo had uh, Japanese subtitles burned in. And so I saw this, and uh, I, I didn't know what to make of it, heads or tails, because it's just so out there. Uh, and I think this may have been before I really got into Buñuel. But then watching it this time for the show, I wrote down that my – Impression today is Bunuel meets John Waters and Coffin Joe at the New Age bookstore. So that's kind of sums up when I when I think of it, like all the influences and all the all the oddness that's in here. It seems like those three guys hanging out at a New Age bookstore or something. For me, I saw this one also on a VHS bootleg. So seeing it on DVD is kind of a revelation. I had picked up that box set that we talked about, the Anchor Bay box, forever ago, and I had never sat down to watch the DVD of it until recently, and it is almost a whole different movie watching it this way. Watch this one with the wife, which was kind of surprising way back a few years ago, probably, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago, something like that. And I was amazed that she was okay with it, though we went through the entire film, and when it came to the end scene, which I know we will talk about, she said, that's it, and basically said, you should never watch Hodorowski and this house again. So we have an unofficial ban on, on his work in my house. 
but I did uh, break the ban and watch uh, Holy Mountain twice this week, and it was wonderful to see again, and it was actually so much more linear than I remember. So let's talk about the opening of this thing. Do you think that these women, are they supposed to look like Marilyn Monroe? Because that's what I was picking up. Yeah, I felt the same way. I got these two ladies the movie starts with, blonde, wearing these white dresses, very kind of Marilyn Monroe-esque dresses. And the alchemist is there, played by Hadorowski, and he strips them of their makeup, strips them of their fake nails, of their jewelry, of their clothes, and then eventually of their hair kind of purifies these women and that's just the opening credits i sort of saw that whole ritual and everything as getting rid of the worldly that all the things that are the worldly you know in moving you know sort of like when we talk about maybe uh, like buddhist monks you know shave their head and live very simple I think what he's trying to set up is that we're stripping away the world here. We're stripping away the artifice. We're stripping away the things that we put upon ourselves and the presentation that we give to the world. I definitely see that. There's a lot of head shaving going on in this film, whether it is on screen or just happens between scenes. But pretty much uh, almost every character, I think, ends up with a shaved head in here. So, yeah, I totally agree. It definitely felt like it was a stripping away of the worldly, and it was nice to have Hodorowski show up here at the very beginning, kind of introduce us to the film a little bit, because we don't see him again until about 30 minutes into the film. And really, for all intents and purposes, that first 30 minutes, I think there's one line of English dialogue, which is, you know, watch the birdie at, at one point. But otherwise, we don't have like a real line of dialogue until about 30 minutes in when the alchemist shows up again. And until then, it's very much, well, actually, there's that little come drink with us scene with the, the Romans and everything. But again, that's kind of more like just it could be anything they could be speaking gibberish and i what i found interesting was that a lot of characters do seem to be speaking gibberish through this opening and it's really kind of shot more like a not necessarily a silent film but just a a film without that much spoken language which i really appreciated so we have that no dialogue of the opening of the opening credits and then going into this story of the thief who makes friends i guess with this little armless, legless type guy. We know that Hodorowski likes guys like this because they were all over El Topo. So, and there's another armless guy later on in the film too. So kind of somewhat disturbing image to me um, of him, you know, waking up this kind of, I don't know. I saw this guy very much more like Christ, even though his character's name is the thief. And I've seen him referred to as the fool. Yeah. He has a tarot with him and it's the fool card. Yeah. But he is the thief and the, uh, Oh, to call him a dwarf, he actually kind of wakens him up in the beginning. That's what I kind of got. And I also heard Jodorowsky mentioned before in, in, in many interviews about the flower representing Christ. So once the, and there's that strange scene with his hand in a flower growing out of his hand, leave it's a rose and it's picked. And when the, like a whole stem growing out of the palm and when it's picked, you see blood. And I kind of saw that as the stigmata symbol and I just believe once that is picked and you see that symbol, he thief actually in a weird way becomes Christ in that opening scene. Like he awakens him. Yeah. That whole group of kids that come in and 
carry the Christ figure away and hang him up on a cross again, another reason why I think he's Christ, and then just start pelting him with stones, including his little friend. <laughs> Though his friend is, you know, kind of nice. He takes some sort of like dead animal leg and, and gives the kids a line like you can't throw stones in front of this line. So at least he gave him some rules around that. Yeah, exactly. And I think he also said that uh, that it could either represent a cross or it could also represent a T for the tarot. The rocks wake this guy up and he scares away all mm-hmm. the kids. And I love the one kid who's wearing a like crocodile skin as they're marching this Christ guy to the to the cross or the T. I, I believe in all their midsections are painted too, like like it's something I never noticed on the VHS until I watched it on Blu-ray, like painted green, I believe. Yeah, so many things that are just kind of floating around in here like you know you had mentioned the one guy has the tarot card on him and there's tarot cards that are kind of laying on the ground and there's the the frog nearby one and what there's a a mountain lion that is in one shot it's just like if you love wild animals holy mountain is for you because you get quite the menagerie but at the same time, I don't think they got certified by the Humane Society. So if you have a problem with like dismembered animals and frogs getting blown up and all kinds of stuff, you probably don't want to watch this because there's a lot of animal mutilation. There's a dog fight in here at one point. And baby hippopotamus. Hippopotami? Yeah, all the lambs, when they enter into the town, I love how happy the uh, the thief and this little guy are once uh, he wakes up from his stoning. The little guy rolls him a cigarette, and then they're just happy as can be, laughing like mad, and go into town. It's actually marijuana they smoke. Yeah. They actually do, and this is something he said, they bond over marijuana. Like, first he scares off the kid with his anger, but... Yeah, his counterpart gives him the marijuana, and, they, and that's how they bond. And I guess as you're continuing, you know, that's probably why they're so happy. And But at the time when they get into town, I, I wrote down, I go, this is the city of death. Because there's the sheep on crosses, there's the military thing, there's the firing squad, there's a truck full of bodies, there's, you know, tourists getting raped. <laughs> there's yeah. like all of this, like, uh, South American death squads kind of military junta takeover kind of stuff going on yeah because for me what, what immediately drew me in when i first when i watched it like the second time like a week later what, what drew me in immediately was was the first like 10 minutes because i grew up with the family that we had to watch the, the ten commandments every easter and we had to watch ben-hur and i watched the greatest story ever told and i grew up on all these biblical films and it wasn't until like last temptation of christ came out where it was like you know, controversial R-rated, you know, biblical film. When I started, and I remember when that when that all happened. And so watching this, that's what immediately drew me in. It was like I felt like, strangely enough, like a kid again watching a biblical film. And the, and I got to say, when I was a kid, there was moments in the Ten Commandments that did disturb me. You know, when all the babies died, and then in the crucifixion scenes, and you know, in the Jesus films I was watching. So in a weird way. Those movies always had a weird thing with me, and immediately I was kind of drawn into this film at first because it was almost like, you know, not knowing what to expect. Is this like his biblical film? And then the more and more we get on, it's just not just all about Christianity. It's just about like almost everything. The town is just insane. I I watched um – 
Arabal's uh, Viva la Mort again today, and it was uh, quite a double feature seeing Holy Mountain and Viva la Mort, and there definitely was something about this whole idea of the soldiers just kind of randomly going around and shooting people, and uh, the X's over the mouths or over the eyes and everything, and I kind of... Um, I won't say I enjoy that, but I enjoyed seeing just the rampant violence and just how clueless all of these tourists were. And the tourists just going around, snapping their photos. And when the one woman is raped by the military guy, just as happy as can be. Look at me, honey. You know, take take some photos and send these back to the kids. It was just, it, just that whole idea of the um, the way that cultures are being exploited by uh, these tourists coming in from out of town, and which really is is for me stated very well with the entire toad versus. Um, it's the great toad and chameleon circus, which. <laughs> which performs the conquest of Mexico, featuring the chameleons as the Aztecs, and then the frogs are the Spaniards. All set to a German military march. The actual headdresses of the Aztecs were like replicas of Montezuma's. So he like even like the little miniature costumes he went, you know, all out with. Plus, it starts off with like a priest toad is the first one off the boat during that whole little sequence, I guess, you know, signifying what, what religion brings, you know, which ends with that bloody explosive, you know, is what I kind of got from that. Yeah, you see the blood just running down the uh, the, the pyramid there, and, and all of the structures that they've built to make it look like the Aztecs, and then and then the whole scene blows up, and everybody dies, the frogs and the uh, the chameleons. So that's why I was saying I don't think that the Humane Society signed off yeah. on this. 1973 in, in Mexico. Yeah, I, I doubt they were hanging out around the set. I don't see that circus having that many performances either. One night only. What it's supposed to represent, I, I believe, it's just like the thief. He got paid for for videotaping the rape for the tourist, and then he understands what money is. And I saw in another Jorowski interview, he got a job at that circus. It's not explained, and you would not know. It's almost like it happened a couple of minutes later, and so he's starting to learn what money is at that point. Yeah, which he's so reticent to give up later on is what, like two dollars that he gets. Another thing is is that if there are leaps like that, part of it may be the fact that Jodorowsky said he shot thirty five hours worth of material for this and he said a large portion of it got damaged. Therefore, he had to put the film together with what he had. It would be interesting to go back and actually look at a full script or if he had a full script, uh, an idea of what it was that maybe some of the missing pieces. They have, what, like six, seven pages on the DVD? They have sections of the script on there, which for me was nearly impossible to see with the resolution of my television and everything. And I had the, the little zoom feature on my DVD player going and trying to look at what was going on. It took me a while to even figure out what language it was written in. It seemed to be primarily Spanish, but then there were English things kind of written there and so many scenes that were cut out, you know, just big X's through pieces and everything. That original script or that script with all of these notations on it, that would be 
definitely a, an interesting historical artifact. It's almost two hours, but it's so jam-packed and it's so tight. Strangely enough, I don't get bored watching this movie. It's strangely enough, it like I don't know if I mentioned it before, it, like it hypnotizes me actually, and I especially like what you said during these first thirty minutes when there really is no dialogue, but when people talk, it's it is gibberish. I don't care about time. I'm just really transported in this world. It's very it's very strange. I can't imagine. I saw a couple of the deleted scenes, but I can't imagine how much more would have fit in this film. I mean, but then again, he has so much to say in just this two hours is almost not even enough time. So, yeah, I would love to see that. You were under the effect of that cinema LSD that he was creating there. Absolutely. I think I was. You're right. It's not boring at all. There's never a moment in this film where I think, man, this is really dragging. You know, come on. You know, enough of this. And that's the thing. When when I think of, like, art cinema, that's usually slower, and more, much more contemplative. You know, I'm thinking of like uh, the Russian arc film. I think it was Sukarov or whatever. And you're just kind of like this long tracking shot. And I'm just like, when I think art films, that's what I generally think of. And I would consider this to be an art film, if not the art film. And there is not a dull moment in here. It just moves continuously through here. I mean, we've talked about so much stuff when we're not even like. 20 minutes into the film. I mean, <laughs> it's like, it, it, and you get into the second and third act. We'll talk about the planet section later on. That stuff just moves so quickly as you're going through these like eight little narratives. It's like, whoa. So we've got all of this stuff going on. And then we have um, more in the town, including these Roman looking folks, uh, very overweight. One woman who I'm not sure if she's a woman, she has a mustache. I'm not exactly sure. I think it's a guy dressed up like the Virgin Mary. And they're like, Hey, come drink with us. Come drink with us to the, to the Christ figure, to the thief. And uh, comes over and they start drinking and everything. He passes out and they take him away put these tubes up his nose and what is it how do they cover him with the stuff to to make these statues what animal is it that they break open it's a pig yeah it's like the lard and fat out of the pig and then they like grease him up and then they pour the plaster over him so they can make a cast of him and he wakes up and they've been very busy yeah there's like hundreds of crucifixes with him his image on them all and they're life-size, too. They're like six feet. Yeah, these graven images of our thief, just as far as the eye can see. And we get another good scream there. This is where you woke up again, Stephen. I think I was still awoken by this point. But yeah, this is this is like his enlightenment scene. And actually, this is Jodorowsky dubbing the thief using his own scream, which is really interesting. I always took this scene as he woke up and saw that he was exploited. And, you know, they made all this out of him. That's why he goes crazy. Doing research for Dune back in the day, I found it was like a 1973 interview with him. You know, I, I would never get this, and I doubt many people would unless it came from his mouth. But the pig, you know, meant ego, the grease. But he was put between two different colored p- potatoes, and he he considers potatoes like uh, the, the roots of a flower, the, the, the root of a tree, you know, the mother of a tree. And he was put between these two potatoes, and they were positive and negative. And because of that... Each one of those potatoes gave birth to one of those Christs, so he created a forest of Christs. Wow. Yeah, 
There you go, folks. Potatoes. <laughs> would, would you have gotten that? No. But I also agree with you on the idea that he felt exploited and the uh, the commentary, he says that the thief wakes up and he's upset because he's now been used as the model for Christ and them being on the street and selling the crucifixes and all that and them trying to make these, these new crucifixes to sell is all about the um, commercialism of, of religion and specifically Catholicism. So – so there's certain aspects of it I got, but other ones I didn't. I think really what's good about this film, and as we go on, and we can play it against, as you said, interviews that Jodorowsky's done or or even the, the commentary track he does on the DVD, that the film has so much stuff in it that I think it is open to multiple interpretations. I don't think there is just one right and wrong way to look at this thing. It's like art. You know, it's like the way you even look at art, you know, like we all interpretate it differently. It's like when you lend this film to friends, you know, a lot of them, a majority of them don't like it, you know, and, but, and, and I think that's the reason why that's, what's so beautiful about this film. It's like when I first saw it back then, I, I, I did not catch really any of this as I did now when I'm older. And then, can't wait to watch it 15 years from now and see what happens. You nailed it. I agree with your whole observation that this film is very hypnotic. I felt very much the same way. But even when you're watching it, you can't necessarily be a passive viewer. You know, you can't just sit there and let this film wash over you and just enjoy it for what it is. I don't know about you guys, but my mind is constantly racing while I'm watching this film, trying to put it together and trying to make a little bit of sense out of it. And I think right now I've come to grips with a lot of it. There's a lot of it I still don't necessarily see. Why is this here? What does this mean? And that is the beauty of this is that I I still have all these questions and that I can look at it now. And then, like you said, Stephen, 15 years from now, and it's like, what will this one mean for me then? Because I can't even imagine putting this film together to come up with all of these different ideas to get them all there and to get this film produced. I mean, we'll talk about some of the amazing set pieces that are coming up, but even just with this opening, it's like, how much did it take to do the Toad Chameleon battle? How do you get the Toad Wrangler, you know, to, to do this? And the, the model of the Aztec city and everything is just amazing. Hollywood throws around for granted a film by, I have to use a horrible example, I apologize, you know, a film by Brett Ratner. But he didn't star in the movie. He didn't also have a hand in the music. He didn't have a hand in... Jodorowsky helped wrangle the frogs and the chameleons, you know? he The opening title sequence, he was involved even with that art. The symbols that he paints on the Mercury Girl that will pop up later. It's just like, it's a Jodorowsky film. And it is an art film, and it's so him. And you throw that thing around all the time, a film by, but he's got his hands. And not only that, but he's pretty much narrating the whole entire movie for you too like you're going on the journey he's taking you on a journey it is a jordorowski film like he's had his hands in everything in this film yeah there's not one frame that i would imagine he would consider you can throw away not one frame i think i would consider that you could throw away it looks like art a lot of these frames like you can print them out and then put them on your wall in a frame so let's keep going with the with the thief here. He discovers himself having been used for the model. How he's exploited, however we want to interpret that. Goes a little nuts with that, but along the way, I, I love when he's carrying along the one version of himself through the city, which is just this bizarre kind of 
sight to see this Christ guy carrying around this crucifix of himself throughout the city, runs into this group of prostitutes who we've seen that are apparently very holy prostitutes. They enjoy looking at their local Jesus statue, including the one girl and her monkey, which is, or sorry, her ape, her chimpanzee. Um, just really quick, going back to the, the Christ that they're looking at, it's, did you notice it's also very green? And that's the green thing coming back again in this movie we're going to see throughout. And then green actually means the color, color of life, and it's the color of Christ. So it's just, it's, it's just weird because um, I also have another DVD. Of, I had like a bootleg DVD of it, and then in that version, it's just regular statue looking. But that must have been Jodorowsky's hand to make sure that the Christ in that scene is green. Well, I noticed that the Christ statue that the thief is carrying around has all this green goo on it, too, that isn't necessarily explained to see, like, this is exactly where this stuff came from. So it's neat how that kind of ties together as well. Rob, what are your thoughts on the prostitutes? I think they're just prostitutes, but I think this is the thing with uh, sort of the Jesus story, because, of course, there is the the story of Jesus hanging with the prostitutes and the the cast-offs and things like that. So maybe at this point he's become, you know, if he wasn't Christ before, at this point he's become Christ, you know, because he's accepted the role maybe in some way. And I I like the one girl with with the chimpanzee who really kind of – ends up following along with the quest and unfortunately she gets a little lost in the mix sometimes but it's nice when she kind of shows back up like she's undergoing this spiritual journey along with them and then one of my favorite parts is when the thief goes to visit a what would would he be like a bishop i guess who's laying in bed with another christ on a crucifix That's a great moment of no dialogue that basically is dialogue with this priest just like... And just basically telling him that everything that he knows is wrong in so many non-words. I would not be surprised if that bishop was having some sort of sexual relationships with Jesus on the cross. They were in a bed, too, right? (laughs) Yes. With covers over him. Yeah, so it is strangely implied. And when is it in here where we finally get the thief going to the temple? The obelisk with no discernible ways in other than this large golden hook. He, he first has to he, – he's dragging around the, uh, the, the crucifix copy of himself, and then he decides to eat his own face. Not his face, yeah. but the face on the cross. And, uh, yeah, I, I know anyone who hasn't seen this and we're talking about it like this, like, I was going to tell you, Mike, this sounds exactly like when we did WR and talked about sweet movie. It's like, there's so much stuff in here that if you haven't seen it, we sound like we're on something, <laughs> but it's actually in the film. We're not making this up. And that really, when I, when I first saw it, that movie really pulled nerves in me and disturbed me because I did not see it coming, but now watching it and you know, it's it's almost like communion in a way. And he's made of delicious cake. He's eat, yeah, he's eating the body of Christ. Let them eat cake. And then the next natural thing to do is to tie balloons to the body of Christ and set him free. Yes, which yeah. kind of reminded me of um, the opening of uh, either Eight and a Half or La Dolce Vita. Well, La Dolce Vita. The statue is being 
taken by, I think, helicopter over the city. Kind of reminded me of Six Feet Under when they let go of all the inflated sex dolls and called it the rapture. I can't help but to think, like, where the hell did that thing land? That's like a whole other movie, you know? It's like, this just fell out of the sky into my backyard. This, this is a sign, you know? Because that's 1973. They didn't follow that thing, I bet. I bet they just let it's it go. The Gods Must Be Crazy Part 3. I think that was the one thing that actually took me out of the movie. They had a Jesus Wrangler somewhere off screen that was shooting all the balloons out. One of the many Wranglers. So eventually he gets over to... This big tower, this is big tower in the middle of like town. And I got this sort of like tower babble kind of idea, right? And there's a big hole up at the top window, I guess. And this giant hook comes down and he jumps on the hook and he goes up the tower and into the tower. And there's like this membrane and he's got a knife with him and he cuts into the membrane and then enters into the room which is this rainbow room, sort of a half circle, kind of cave rainbow kind of deal. And at the far end is a camel and this black woman with all these symbols on her. And then the alchemist who we're going to come to know, because we didn't see his face in the opening, but it's him, but he's dressed in white, same outfit, hat. And it's Jodorowsky sitting on like a throne. He's just sitting there. And the thief is just in a loincloth, all Jesus-looking, and he's kind of inching towards him in this rainbow room. And then he gets up to him, and then there's like a fight. A karate fight. I love the way that Jodorowsky moves in this scene, where he lets his legs go out in front of him so much as he's walking so slowly through this scene. (laughs) It's just like, what is he doing? Why is he holding his body like that? But it was so interesting to watch him do that. The set, the Rainbow Room set, is just crazy. Who lets him build a set like that, and who shoots a a set like that? I mean, that was just gorgeous. The whole tower, all the sets in it are incredible, actually, you know, and and they're unforgettable for me, too. I don't know how they they did some of these rooms, the bathing rooms and the initiation rooms, you know, and the the the, the room when they're work, walking around the third eye with the with the bodies on the wall it's just like it's just it's incredible the the production design and it looks expensive oh it looks yeah it looks like gobs and gobs of money were thrown at this movie and it's like was this all yeah, I know it was an Alan Klein production, but was this all like Beatles money? Was this Apple Records money going to this thing? It's, it's funny that you bring up Beatles because Jodorowsky says on the commentary that the thief was to be played by George Harrison. Ah. And said that Alan Klein introduced him to George Harrison and he read the script and he wanted to do it, but he had one problem and the problem's coming up where after the alchemist you know, touches his chakras and does all this stuff and stops him from fighting and then lances this boil on his neck and pulls out this octopus and then asks him what he's there for and and all that. Like I said, the first dialogue scene, what do you, you know, do you want gold? Is that what you're here for? And all this. There's a scene where they take the thief because he's now going to be taught by the alchemist and he's ritually bathed, which includes a nice big close-up of this guy's ass being Mm -hmm. washed very thoroughly and according to Jodorowsky, he said that George Harrison was on board until the anus washing scene. He was not – he goes, you, if you cut that, I'll do the film. 
And he's like, I can't cut that. It's got to be in there. So he refused to do the film. I can just hear Jodorowsky saying that, too. I read a lot of articles and interviews and reviews of this film. And every time I read a review or an interview, I should say, I heard Jodorowsky's voice in my head saying the words. And it just made everything so much more enjoyable. I hear it, too. I'm sure you do. <laughs> I'm sure you do. I, I, I hear it, too. It's pretty amazing. And, and it's something that he kind of did. You know, he regretted it in a weird way because he was like, if he would have put George Harrison in this movie, it would have got out to way more audience and it would have made a lot more money. But, you know, it's the same situation why you want Jack Nicholson and Jelka Houston on Santa Sangre. Once you add the stars in, they're going to change. Your film's going to be totally different. So we would have had a different movie with him in it. So maybe in a way, unfortunately for his sake, he didn't make as much money off of it. But then again, his, you know, he got to keep his art the way it is, which keeps us talking about it to this day. Before we take a break here and play back an interview, I just want to give a shout out to the director of photography, Rafael Corchiti, who just... He was a director in his own right. He did several films. I think he has, um, between shorts and features, he's got like 27 things in his filmography. But he had worked with Hodorowski uh, all the way back with, with Fando and Lise, and, and he'd done El Topo with him. He'd work on Puberta, Pubertinaje, um, which had, I think, Brantis was uh, in that film. So he had been involved with Hodorowski uh, for a long time, and he had done a lot of his own films, and every single one of them is gorgeous to look at. So he definitely had an eye, and it was just kind of amazing because he had done some shorts, like I said, beforehand, all the way back to like 1957. So he had 10 years of experience before Fondo and Lise came around. But to see the level that not even another 10 years would bring with the look and feel of the Holy Mountain, it's a technical marvel. And it's just such a, a beautiful film that he could help capture those images and bring out those colors and everything that Hodorowski wanted. I mean, because it is, like you said, Stephen, it is like a, a work of art. It's like a, a, a film painting, some of these scenes. You're, you're right about the, the, the director of photography. It's it's just phenomenal. And it's something, you know, now us three rewatching it now in like DVD and Blu-ray. It's like, yeah, we've never knew that before. <laughs> I mean, it always looked interesting, but now it's it's beautiful. Just words cannot describe. It's like criminally underrated that it's not, it's not really appreciated in that way. Yeah, and I kind of wish that Corkiti had gotten a little bit more notice as well. He's He directed at least three or four major films, Panifico Santo and um, Deseos and all these different things, and they are still MIA on any sort of uh, DVD format, as far as I know. He's got a couple things that are out on DVD. It kind of became a little bit of my obsession years ago to find some of these movies that he did, just because he was so involved with Jodorowsky. It's like, let's see what this guy has to offer and some of his films are as laced with symbolism and everything that Jodorowsky's films are so it's it's interesting to compare you know when Rob and I when we talked about Jodorowsky's Dune we talked about this whole panic school and just all of these artists kind of coming together and Corkidi mm -hmm. was one of those guys that was in the mix but people don't necessarily he doesn't even read up there when you say like Arabal and Topor and all these guys it's like you know I would like if his name 
got out there a little bit more so people knew the importance that he had to this group of, of artists. One of the intrinsic set of symbols in the Holy Mountain is the tarot that we've we've talked a little bit about it. And I recently, very recently, like a few hours ago, in fact, I talked to Heather Lee Navarre of Ferndale, Michigan's Boston Tea Room about the tarot, what it means, how it relates to Holy Mountain. And I even had my cards read, which I may or may not play back as part of this interview. I'm not sure exactly how masturbatory I want to be. So let's play that and we'll be back after a few important messages. Do you remember your first time? <laughs> the first time you fell in love <laughs> with horror. <laughs> Science fiction. <laughs> Post-apocalyptic fantasies. Ah! MVP Mutant Radio will help you rediscover your inner fan again as we talk you through the latest and greatest theatrical releases in horror. You're all going to die tonight. We can guide you to a new, better, happier you. Science fiction. Prometheus, are you seeing this? Big things have small beginnings. Law is not the law. I am the law. And all out badassery. We'll bring you interviews with independent filmmaking masterminds, as well as specials like Murder by Music and the Drunken New Year's Eve Mega Show. Listen online at www.mutantville.com or subscribe on iTunes. If you're a man, you don't cry about it. You take life, the ups and downs. If you're a real man, you never go down, you just stay up. The Mutantville players are ready to lead the art jihad against haterism and the forces of fandom. Movies need only three things. Badasses. You tell me who you want done, and I'll do the hell out of it. A chick with drive who don't take no jive. Boobs. Do you know that the female breast, known to be the source of life since Eve... Can be deadly weapons and body counts. Body count: the mathematics of murder and menace. The BBNBC podcast discusses lesser-known action, exploitation, and horror cult cinema. You can find the show on iTunes, Stitcher Smart Radio, and SoundCloud by searching for BBNBC podcast. You can also listen to each episode directly on the show's website at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com. Got the goddamn message? Let's go to work. 
everyone wants to spice things up in the bedroom. Here's an offer you won't want to miss. Listeners of the Projection Booth Podcast can enjoy 50% off just about any one item at adamandeve.com when you use the promotion code BOOTH. You also get free shipping and three free adult DVDs. Once again, that promotional code is BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H. Visit adamandeve.com today. My name's Heather Lee Navarre, and I'm the owner of the Boston Tea Room in Ferndale. My family has owned a series of psychic tea rooms in the metro Detroit area for over 30 years. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. So how did you or your family get into this? Um, well, the first reader at the tea room was my great-aunt Rita, and she was born and raised in Boston and Salem, which is where we get the name. And uh, she was a tea leaf reader, and so it all started from there. She used to do tea leaf readings in my aunt and uncle's little family restaurant in downtown Wyandotte and her tea leaf readings got more popular than the tuna melts so we had to open a a shop just for her to do readings and it kind of sprang from there. Okay. How does one get to be popular doing readings? Be good. Uh Be good and people will find you and you will become extremely popular. Yeah. Did you start with the tea leaves or how did you get into it personally? I didn't for a long time. I sort of, being in the psychic field is a little bit like being in the mob. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, what do they say in The Godfather? I try keep trying to get out and they keep pulling me back in. Right. So I moved away right out of high school and was in the music business and did some social work for a while and a lot of nonprofit work. And I ended up coming back when there was a, a family illness just to help out. And that was about 12 years ago and I've never left. But I think the first reading that I received, I was about 12 years old. And the first reading that I gave, I was probably 14. But I've only been doing it professionally now for about 12 years. Okay. What do you enjoy about it? The people. The people. Yeah, they're my species. You know, I I want a job where I get to meet and learn and find out about and spend time with new people every single day. So I have the best job in the world. So I guess it's kind of like social work, but a little different? Yeah, except that I get to work with people before they've hit the crisis situation usually and so there's a little bit more wiggle room there's a little bit more room to do things to avoid hitting a crisis in one's life so so did you start off with tea leaves or what did you start off with um you know i did do tea leaves at sort of a family heritage i think tarot i I consider my second language i'm bilingual in english and tarot and a tiny bit of spanish and um, i do mediumship and past life regression and meditation I'm total crap with astrology or palmistry or anything like that. But, yeah, tarot, tea leaves, and mediumship are really kind of home base for me. Okay. How did you learn the tarot? Well, you know, you learn just by simply looking at them. It's it's sort of like any um, talent. There are people, anyone can learn to play the piano, but there are some people that are going to pick it up really quickly. It's mm-hmm. in their blood or they're just predisposed to it somehow. That's how tarot was for me. When people start talking about astrology, I've no idea what they're talking about, but as soon as I looked at a deck of tarot cards, I went, ah, that makes sense. I see what they're doing. So So tell me about tarot. What what is it? I mean, there's, what, 79 cards? Is that right? It's I mean, paper and ink, Mike. That's okay. all it is. It is uh, 78 cards, okay. so you're only off by one. Okay. Um, 
Now, when you print out the sheets for decks, there's those two extra spots because there would be 80. So some deck creators will throw you an extra card or two every once in a while. But in a traditional tarot deck, part of what makes it a tarot deck rather than just some oracle is that structure. And so it's 78 cards. It's um, They call it the majors and the minors or the pips and the trumps. It was originally a card game. You'll hear all kinds of crazy talk about how it came from Egypt. No, it didn't. It came from the mid-14th century in Italy. And there are scholars now who can probably tell you the street address and what wallpaper was on the wall in the room where it was invented. So we know now that it's from Renaissance Italy. And it was originally invented to be a card game, much like Bridge. And it's now it's still widely played across Europe, a, game, a card game called Taroki. So it's kind of like a card game, but with all face cards? Well, no, they actually have the four suits. You can you can actually take out the trumps in a deck of tarot cards and play gin rummy with your tarot deck. Okay. And by the same token, you can do a tarot reading with a deck of traditional playing cards. There are four suits and there are court cards. So the difference is the addition of the trumps. And the trumps have to do with... Um, archetypes, really, human archetypes. There must have been 40, 50 different types of decks out there? Closer to 100 out there, and there are literally thousands on the market today. What are some of the differences? There are the classicists who really like their ancient Italian tarots, and then there or the French Marseille decks, which Jodorowsky was a big fan of, and the deck that he did was actually sort of a revised Marseille deck. The big difference between the traditional Italians and the Marseille decks is the Italian decks were original works of art. Each one had to be crafted by hand. By the time you get into the time of the Marseille decks, in Marseille, France, they were actually doing printing based on woodcuts, and so you had more decks being turned out. It was the closest thing to mass market. The most popular deck that people see today is the Waite-Smith deck, or sometimes called the Rider-Waite deck. It was um, conceived by Alfred E. Waite, who was one of the gold and Dawn Mystics around the turn of the century in Great Britain, and the art was done by Pamela Coleman-Smith, usually called Pixie Smith, and that became the classic. It was the first deck where they illustrated and told a story on every single one of the cards, even the suits, and that hadn't really been done until then. That was really when we see begin to see tarot as a form of divination tool really take off. Okay. We'd, we'd heard references to it earlier in the letters of Casanova. He refers to one of his lovers doing divination with tarot cards, but generally it was played as a game. Looking at a card deck, you've got your ace through king, so mm-hmm. each one of these decks would have have that same thing, just with yep. different styles of art? Sure, or? it's aces through kings, and the four cups or the four suits, kind of cups are hearts, and the pentacles are diamonds, and the wands are the clubs, and then the swords would be the spades. Okay. And they correspond to the different to the four elements, earth, air, fire, and water. Mm-hmm. I think I asked you this before, but what deck do you like? Well, I love the Marseille decks, mm-hmm. um, and so I work a lot with those. And then there are some newer ones, you know, different artists put a different spin on it and their own interpretation. There's one right now that I really love called the Gaian Tarot. It's very kind of earth-centered, but one thing I particularly enjoy is that all the depictions of people reference people from all different cultures. And, you know, until the past few decades, we really didn't have any tarot decks that did that. It was pretty much a white man's game. So tell me about this screening that you did of Holy Mountain. So we've got a community called the Detroit Area Tarot Guild, and it's a group of people who are really tarot hobby 
hobbyists. Some of them, sure, a couple of them have probably been reading cards professionally for 20, 30 years, but a lot of them are people who just picked up a deck sometime over the past few years and they play with it off and on. They're not interested in being professional readers, but they're interested in exploring tarot and how it might contribute to their quality of life. And so they do it as a hobby. So we're always looking for new ideas of things to do. And um, a few years ago, I had had, I'd never heard of Yodorowsky or the Holy Mountain. And then in pretty quick succession, I'd had three or four people reference this particular movie and this man. Right. Well, I'm in the business of paying attention to signs. So I'm <laughs> sought out the film and said, okay, this is some pretty crazy stuff. Yes. So let's see if there's any interest here. And we got together and watched it. And, you know, because the group is so diverse, we've got grandmas and we've got, you know, 20 year old hipsters and everybody in between. The reaction was very mixed and the discussion <laughs> afterward was really interesting and very lively. What do you recall? What were the highlights? There was one of the grandmas uh, in the room commented that she hadn't seen that much nudity since her honeymoon. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it was interesting. Some of the younger people, at least younger chronologically, actually didn't get as much out of it as some of the people who, who were a little bit more mature and who, frankly, I think had lived through the 70s and were used to sort of magical realism combined with sort of psychedelic art form. So so how do you see tarot kind of playing into that? Because I know there's overt references to tarot with the, the little man with no legs, he's got a tarot card on his back and there's some cards that are laid out and then there are some other references throughout. Sure. Yeah, and those are the literal ones but if you kind of dwell in the world of tarot at all, you start to see the more subtle references. The He would stage particular scenes in a way that you would look at the juxtaposition of black and white and the placement of the human form within a particular scene and say, ah, that's the high priestess card. Okay. You know, And some of those references were really quick and you might not catch them upon initial watching. Um, and some of them were almost sort of, there was a still, he would sort of pull back as though he was waiting for you to get it before he would move on to the next scene. The other thing is sort of this overarching theme. Now, one could say that most Western movies in our society are based on, you know, the fool's journey, the quest. You know, that's what storytelling is in our culture and our civilization. That's also basically the story of the tarot deck. The major arcana are known as the fool's journey, and our hero is the fool, and he goes on this madcap quest where he experiences all of these different adventures. So it was very clear that the main character in this movie is, you know, going on this quest for his own holy mountain. Yeah, I've seen him referred to as Jesus. I've seen him referred to as the thief. And then I have seen him referred to as the fool as well. And they're all one and the same. Right. (laughs) (laughs) There are so many different schools of symbolism that are going on in that film that I was curious as far as just, you know, coming at it from one angle, though I know that you have background to come at it from many angles, so it's interesting to get your take on it. Sure. I, You know, there was a real schizophrenia to that. You know, as I investigated Jodorowsky a little bit more, I saw that he was a bit of an intellectual dilettante. He would follow streams of thought and, you know, um, and academic pursuits, intellectual pursuits that he felt 
found fascinating. And as soon as they no longer resonated with him, him, he would abandon them and move on to something else. And so he didn't have sort of the disciplined intellect of some other scholars. But within that kind of schizophrenic, um, frenetic energy, I think he sort of gave birth to something a little bit new. And that's rare these days. So I appreciate that. As a tarot reader, do you ever read your own cards? Is that possible? Well, yes and no. In fact, lately I've been working with this deck by Ellen Lorenzi Prince called The Dark Goddesses, and it's a tarot, and it's filled with Durga and Kali and, you know, Sedna and all these, like, really badass chicks. And it's a deck specifically designed to use the tarot structure to help people do pretty intense shadow work and really explore some of the dark sides of our own character and do some transformative self-actualization work. So I do read for myself with that deck for that specific purpose. But as far as tarot for um, predictive stuff, you know, does my sweetie really love me or what are my lucky numbers? I would never be so silly to read for myself in that way because I just don't think you can get past your own inner filters. You're either seeing what you want to see or you're seeing the absolute worst outcome. How about you? Did you like the movie? You know, what I came away from the movie thinking was I'll bet I would have really enjoyed that if I'd watched it in the 90s when I was still drinking and doing other things, you know? (laughs) I think that's a movie that can really be... um, Improved with the use of recreational drugs. Yeah. So, but to watch it stone cold sober, I was like, yeah, I get where you're going with it, but it leaves me a little flat. So, have you had a reading before, Mike? I have not. Oh, okay, great. First time. So, these are Yodorowski's cards, and they're a revision of the Marseille deck. So what I'll have you do is just shuffle those once, and while you're shuffling, just be thinking about what you'd like to know, anything that's going on with you, any questions you have, situations you'd like a little insight into. Okay. Like how bad I am at shuffling cards? <laughs> you're actually pretty good. They often go flying. So. <laughs> And so did you come in with any particular, you know, question in mind or anything that you kind of wanted to investigate? I might have something in my mind. Okay. <laughs> but you don't want to divulge, right? Uh, should I? No, you. it's totally up to you. It's your session. Okay. Some people do. Some people ask a specific question, that kind of thing. We can just throw some cards and see okay. what comes up. And you can tell me, oh, yeah, that's actually what I was thinking about. Okay. Or you can not. Okay? All right. So let's give it a shot. I have a reader um, friend who says that the fewer cards you lay, the closer you are to the answer. And the more cards you lay, the further away you're getting from the answer. So, I'm curious about the podcast. I mean, we're at a place where things are going really well with it, but I don't know if I should make the next move and try to get more sponsorship with that and mm-hmm. actually kind of branch out a little bit more, or if it's okay just being this kind of hobby thing that it is right now. Okay. It's something that you really have a lot of fun with. It's very close to your heart. And I think there's two reasons. It's not just the subject matter. You're not just a film buff. You're also like 
kind of a techie nerd. I'm sorry, but you are, <laughs> you know? And so it's feeding two of your separate passions. So this is a really, really good thing. Um, now the four of coins basically says, you know, that when it comes to the investment that would, that's required right now, whatever you're paying to do this or whatever you're getting back, like it's almost like whatever's coming in is also going out. It's yes. like a complete, even Steven, you know, you're not going into debt from it, but you're also not profiting. So these four coins represent stable finances where that's concerned. Um, really though, we get the judgment card reverse. So I'll flip that around. This is a theme that you'll see in Holy Mountain quite a bit is, you know, the souls being called to heaven, the ark angel bringing them back from their graves mm -hmm. and so here's the thing is that now, what is this in the middle here that is a grave that is a tomb oh okay and this, this is, is a person okay. mm -hmm. yeah all right yeah so um yeah so they're being called heavenward right and so the interesting thing here is this is the card that represents that come to jesus moment <laughs> where really in order to depart from this and take the podcast to the next level, it requires beginning to treat it as though it's something that you really have a stake in and suddenly there is a risk involved and you don't seem to really be ready to do that. You want it to remain fun. You want it to remain an asset rather than a liability and you don't want it to turn into something that is, you know, the beast of your own creation sort of thing. So it's a come to Jesus moment. You, um, you know, the, the fact that it's reversed says that for whatever reason, and someone has put up a wall and said, you're not going past this. Now, I don't know if it's you, if it's the other person who does the podcast, if it's your wives, I don't know who it is, but someone has said, no more for right now. So you have to question, is that coming from your own laziness, reticence, fear of risk? What's it really about? You could absolutely turn this card over, but make sure that you're prepared for what may come next, you know, in order to generate more revenue, you're then going to have pressure on you to perform. And right now it feels like, um, your numbers are okay. You know, it's not blowing anybody out of the water, but it's okay. It's pat on the back worthy, but it's not necessarily, um, you know, next big thing worthy at this point. So really think about what you're going to do differently to grow it if you decide to take it to the next step. I think it's totally doable, you know, and I think you could generate revenue. I don't think that you're anywhere near a place where you could step back from the security of sort of working for the man, but you're definitely at a place where it could do more than just pay for itself. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Great. All right, cool. Did I do okay? Yeah, you did wonderfully. Thank Great. you so much. talking about the holy mountain now we've only just begun to scratch the film surface in the second act we're introduced to some very interesting individuals who represent the planets of the solar system you heard men are from mars women are from venus well actually that might be the other way around 
uh, <laughs> in a lot of ways in Jodorowsky's uh, Universe of the Planets. So where do you want to dive in on this, gents? The thief, I guess, is representing Earth in this. You know, we've purified the thief. We've had the the ritual cleansing of the Anus, the turning the shit into gold, and then basically it's let's go one better and let's introduce eight more thieves. And I like that Hodorowski refers to them as thieves here. And we have these life size replicas of them as well in this room that Stephen had mentioned where they're all on these walls and the walls are moving one way, the floor's moving and just some of these shots from up above of these movements and everything just absolutely glorious and then from ground level as well, just seeing the way that these characters are moving within this space just that alone is mesmerizing it's one of my favorite shots in this film, and to this day, I, I've never seen anything like it. So we go from just the thief and his story, and then suddenly we branch. This is kind of an interesting narrative twist that we branch out into eight other stories, and we basically get these eight little snippets of these people's lives where we go through each one of the planets or each one of these characters who's represented by a planet. So we have Fawn, who is represented by Venus, who is all into comfort. So he's got a lot of beds around. It kind of looks like he works at a mattress factory or something. And the way that his father determines his business decisions is a very interesting way. Before making a decision, he consults with my mother's mummy. He puts his hand into her sex. If it's moist, it's yes. If it's dry, it's no. Uh, yeah. I don't know how deep we want to get into these these eight. Um... <laughs> well, we should just go through like what they what their main representative ideas. Are. Okay. So so Venus is is comfort in the body, narcissism to some extent. Uh, Mars is played by a woman. And she makes and sells weapons, of course. There are various types of weapons. So there's like fashion weapons, like grenades that are like hip accessories. And there's like a guitar that's a gun. And and then there's religious weapons where he takes like a menorah and turns it into a pistol and, and, and a crucifix, obviously, and things like that. And the Buddha. Uh, yeah, the Buddha. The, the Buddha with a gun sticking out of it, yeah. And what's also cool about this sequence is it's just like you get you get right into it, and it's almost like this is like early seventies, and there is blaring rock music. Oh yeah, and her voice, she's narrating. It's very again, it's very hypnotizing, very drone like, and then it's almost like she's it's almost lyrics to like a rock song, and you're watching pretty much one of the first music videos because even her narration starts to echo and have some type of distortion over it, almost like a music video, because there's so many cuts. There's this really heavy guitar going while you're just watching these weird, unique guns. And, yeah, like you like like you said, uh, and, uh, grenade necklaces and all these interesting weapons. And it's just like, I can't imagine being in the theater watching this, this, this little sequence, because it just comes from out of nowhere. <laughs> and, and it's just, it's, it's really unique. It's like each one of these sections seems to have its, well, each one has its own narrator and it has its own theme and then it almost seems to have its own pacing and everything to it too. It's almost like we've got like eight mini movies resting in the middle of Holy Mountain here with just this, 
these backstories of who these people are or what they're currently up to. So th- we go from Mars out to Jupiter with this guy who kind of reminded me of one of the doctors from St. Elsewhere for some reason. I don't know why, but um, he is all about <laughs> – I love <laughs> – how he introduces my house my wife my chauffeur my lover a thousand a week and he's all into art and definitely has a very interesting way of of making art and some great different um, artworks that he has including the uh, self-replicating machine. You know, in Barbarella, we're introduced to the Orgasmatron, right? But in here, it's a machine that you make love to it, and then it, it grows, and then it creates its own little baby machine. <laughs> that you have to rock to, to make it calm. It's like, what the hell? Like that, I mean, even in within this segment, because he's talking about, like, my wife, my car, all this stuff, and it's just kind of following along. And then the art stuff just kind of, like, where did this come from? Like that love machine thing is just like, whoa, what, how did this come about? And that's like a whole other story unto itself. And it transforms and it's, yeah, it's, it's really wild. I can't even explain it. And him with laying on his back with that butt above him, he's having a lot of fun, almost too much fun. Yeah. He's probably, I mean, I know he always talks about like art museums and just how art is dying. I, I, I could just understand that just, that must be what he's trying to say there, you know, just how outrageous probably art galleries were at that time. So we go from Jupiter out to Saturn with Sill. Saturn is uh, into children, but their her factory is all elderly folks, all like senior citizens making war toys and then conditioning kids for war based on what the computer tells them that they might have to do. We feed the computer data on coming wars and revolutions. It tells us what kind of toys to produce to condition children from birth. For example, if the government calculates that it will be necessary to wage war against Peru, our machine studies the Peruvians and tells us what to do. We manufacture hypersexed brown native vampires who can only be destroyed by a cross the color of white skin. We create a laxative that induces vomiting. We name it after the capital of Peru and tint it with the color of the natives. We started a comic book campaign. For 15 years in advance, we conditioned children to hate the future enemy. It's saying a lot, too. It's like from Saturn, who if when you look up Saturn, there's pictures of him in paintings eating children. And then you have all of her like followers are dressed up as Santa, you know, and then and that's what the whole commercialization of Christmas is, is that, you know, Santa really is Satan. And now you have this girl like what you just said about Peru. You know, it's like a toy factory. It's children's weapons, getting them ready to fight Peru. And then if you fast forward to like late 90s, early 2000s, there was a game Called Merc- a video game called Mercenaries 2 about to come out, and the Venezuelan government was upset because they thought it was propaganda about getting kids ready to go to war against Venezuela because you just drove around blowing crap up in this game. So it's like, it's so wild. It's 
really ahead of its time. She has all of these bases covered, you know, the it's so insidious and it just it rang true on so many levels. With this one, I think we're just what is it, Rob? Were we just taking people out by helicopter from Vietnam? You know, it was had just ended officially recently, uh, uh, but not not even yet. You still had uh, another two years. Oh, jeez, seventy five. So this is right in the middle of that. And there's other scenes in here that remind me that you know, as we talked about on Mister Freedom, and talked about sixty eight and the student uprisings. There's a couple of scenes that we have in here that remind me of him sort of restaging student rebellions. Oh, yeah, definitely. So the next one up is uh, Uranus. <laughs> and he's the financial advisor to the president. And the one thing that makes me laugh about this whole situation, and I know that there's many different things, is how he talks about they're going to create not only gas chambers, but gas schools, gas libraries, gas dance halls, gas warehouses, gas whorehouses. All to get rid of that excess population so that their finances are perfect in, in five life. years, yes. That's right, yes. This is the one out of all of them where I agree with Rob in the beginning when he mentioned John Waters. It's almost like John Waters-like, this short, just the situation with the son and the mother. Even if it reminds me, I hate to even throw this in because I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but even like moments of Toxic Avenger 2 and 3, with, it just has this weird, bizarre tone to it from the other stories. It's just – it's really strange with this mother and, and this son and I think at one point he's like laying in a bed of like lettuce and then she's like touching him with a skeleton hand. Yeah. And it's just like, I mean, I can't even explain. It's, it's like this mom is like, and just like, oh God, it's like, I, yeah, I can't even explain. She's got the green pubic wig and then she takes a dump on this toilet that's like six foot in the air. It's like this huge toilet. <laughs> yes, it's very, that's, the, that's what totally reminded me of John Waters. And while she's up there, she has to like tell her son to fix the hole in the roof. It's like, what? <laughs> I could totally see Edith Massey in there. Oh hole. yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, you're right. This one does really smack of him this one seems to be the most i won't say out of place but it seems to be the most different of them i would have to say that my favorite one is the next one is neptune with uh axon the chief of police who has collected 999 pairs of balls from people that have volunteered to serve him which, if you think about it, that is what they did to warriors in some ancient societies, was to castrate them, to make them eunuchs. That whole scene, him with that huge frickin' gun, and the guy who's tied up there, and the snipping of the balls, and all the balls in the, the containers, going into the riot scenes and everything, and him with his whole equine kind of thing. He's got this mane of hair and the clothes that he wears just make him look so much like a horse. It's just like, it's so visually striking in this. And that's with these student uprisings, just where things go absolutely balls out. I mean, we've seen people get shot and have birds fly out of them and everything, but this one just gets to absolutely insane levels of 
weird gore. Well, not even weird gore, but symbolic gore. Yeah. Like there's this girl mm-hmm. on the ground and you get the feeling that police or whatever is like hitting her in the stomach and then reaching in and pulling out the baby. Mm-hmm. But it's a head of lettuce and then he's stomping on it. And then there's like this kid who's in the gutter and he's puking up cherries. And then like, like these tubes, you can see the blood and the special effects. And they're like pulling out all this stuff out of people and pulling out ribbons instead of in a tree. Yeah. Like someone pulls like a tree limb out of someone's gut and all this yeah it's it's really out there purple blood and green blood and candy and sugar pops and just like what the hell gorgeous it's something else i guess it's that one i could totally see it's 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 him talking about like power fascists genocide and just even even the fact that that scene with him and that enormous gun is such an amazing image. It's just he's showing off his power, his big dick, before he takes this guy's in a castration. And it, but I, in an interview I once saw with him, he did say that that meant like dictators castrating young boys. It was like hate on hate on the youth. It's a really powerful segment. There's a lot that are being said. Even when you look at Axon's like hairdo is like a mohawk and like we saw in the beginning with those romans with those mohawk helmets you know so much is being said in this whole in this in this short little sequence it's really amazing neptune we go to pluto who i don't know if he would still be in the movie if it were made today after pluto's been deprecated to a planetoid yeah (laughs) not a full planet anymore no but his big deal is architecture, and he's decided to design what he calls the City of Freedom, which is the uh, – you know people don't need houses or anything that's like architecturally nice. They just need body storage. So it's all these coffins basically on scaffoldings, his stories and stories and stories of them. I was totally reminded of Blade at this point when they're doing like the blood farming <laughs> in Blade. A lot of things remind me of Blade. I think it's just your second reference to Blade and – the past two or three uh, oh, wow. episodes. Yeah. The whole thing with the beginning of his segment where he's wandering around his own house and there's all those little like Mickey Mouse children that are following him around. Yeah, the Minnie, Mo- the Minnie Mouse uh, girls. Yeah. Wow, that was intense. Yeah, and it's Pluto and Mickey Mouse. And so he hates Disney. He always said that Disney's a monster. You know, Mickey was a pervert. Disney turned children into idiots. So I guess that's probably, you know, his little dig at Disney in this section. That dinner scene where Pluto is unveiling his whole city of the future and that giant ice sculpture of the penis and everything. It's like a five-foot-long giant ice sculpture. Yeah. And these, like, three, four women are, like, all over it. Very cold. Interesting. <laughs> so, really, I didn't look at the timer to see how long this section takes, but it's a, it's a pretty good chunk of the film just to go through and introduce us to these eight other characters that, really, up until this point, we've only seen the casts of their bodies. And then we go back into it, and they're all on board. They come in, and they are ready to follow the alchemist. Apparently, he has a some sort of relationship with the, all these guys. Obviously, he's got their body casts in his, in his tower. And he describes all of these different holy mountains that have shown up through sacred literature. You have to remember that they're there because he says to them, yeah, you have money and you have power, but the one thing that you can't get is you can't escape death. 
but I can show you how to be immortal. He's offering them the one thing that their money and their power can't get them which is immortality. And not only do I love that, but then I love the whole thing where it's like, we're going to make you, I don't know how to say, like we're going to make you better human beings. We'll make you more spiritual human beings, but really we're going to find these people, these nine people that live on top of this holy mountain that live forever. And we're going to kill them and steal their secrets. (laughs) So it's not even like (laughs) we're going to become better than they are. And, Gain this, gain their immortality that way. We're going to steal it from them, which I guess is fitting that all nine of these people are thieves in one way or another. Yeah, they're they're not good people. Which is bizarre that then for the rest of the film we are following these essentially not good people. I mean, I'm still rooting for them to find what they want to find i guess just because we have been on this kind of hero's journey as we go through the film i mean the the thief isn't necessarily somebody who i relate to that much but i am all about following these people and finding out where they go so he has me very hooked at this point it's like let's see where they end up with this story before they can go anywhere they have to get rid of a couple of things and we saw this a little bit earlier you were talking about the opening and the divestiture of the ego or the material that is upon us be it you know the hair the nails the clothes whatever so he has this scene where he brings him into a room another amazing design that we see originally from the top and looks like an eye and they sit down at this table all of them around the table and he's like, burn your money. And in those, in basically would be the, the pupil of the eye is this fire, and they just put their money in. And in various ones, you'll notice, put their money in in different ways. Some just push it all in. Some are kind of like one at a time. You know, it all depends. And then um, all of the sculptures that we've seen of them, the body casts, then they have to burn those as well. So it's, you know, burn the material, burn the ego or the Mm self-image. And then you can eventually work on getting to the spiritual plane or the higher enlightenment once you can divest yourself of the ego and the material world. As you mentioned earlier, Stephen, the thief is very reticent to get rid of those $2 that he made at the Toad Circus, (laughs) which I love how everyone's laughing at him. But I can totally understand. You know, it's the only money he has in the world. For them, they're throwing away millions and millions of dollars. And like you were saying, Rob, some of it is very easy for them. But for him, it's a little difficult. He has so little. So to get rid of just that little bit that he has is so difficult for him. And thus begins, really, I would say maybe our third act of the film where we go out and take on this journey For the most part, this is the most straightforward section of the film, is them physically traveling to the Holy Mountain and climbing this this mountain and getting up there. Though there's some great kind of sideline freakout things (laughs) they have going on there, because (laughs) not everybody makes it to the top of the Holy Mountain. Well, one of the things that you brought up as this being straightforward is on the commentary, and I didn't think about it until... I was watching the commentary today is the first part of the film is more fantastical, but he said, once they burn the bodies, 
once they burn the the life cast, the body cast, mm-hmm. he goes from there on in. He goes, I wanted it shut like Verite. I wanted it to be like a documentary, and it becomes very much like that. It's very handheld. It's very like them in nature. Um, there's a couple of effects here and there, but overall, that whole thing is just them doing it. And he actually talked about how these actors, he trained them for several months. They all had to live in a house together, and they only got about four hours sleep and had them do exercise and fed them psychedelic mushrooms, psilocybin mushrooms. <laughs> and uh, and he wanted to climb this mountain, and they did. He said it took them four days to, to climb the mountain. So basically he started a cult. Yeah, kind of. And it's it, it's almost in a way like uh, Herzog talks about making Fitzcarraldo, where he actually takes the boat and moves it over the mountain. It They actually do climb the mountain in this film. So what you're seeing is actually documentary, even though it's within a fiction film. Yeah, he not only wanted to enlighten the audience, he actually wanted to enlighten all those. Because a lot of them, I think there was only one that was actually an actor. And the one that played the lesbian... Was it Mars? She was actually a lesbian, and one of the guys was actually a millionaire. So, yeah, it's just very – yeah, it's an interesting experiment he was doing with all that. And I think at the ending of it, they all hated him. Because I heard they all hated the ending, which is funny because this goes back to Mike's wife and why she hated the ending. If this was an MST3K episode, this is where the deep hurting comes in because we're doing a lot of rock climbing. In regards to today's movie, I'm just going to say rock climbing. Rock climbing? Oh, looks like we start climbing. Joel, why are we watching this dull mountain climbing sequence? Well, because it's there. Uh-oh. Going up the, the mountain and going through several... Uh, it seems like he's putting them through tests quite often. I was watching the deleted scenes, and it seems like a lot of the deleted scenes came from this section of the movie, where it was just more things that he made these folks do. I mean, there was a whole thing of uh, more meditation, more walking around. He had them um, kneeling so long that their limbs were kind of uh, uh, numb, so he had to get them awake again. And then one scene that I kind of wish was in the film where he reenacts the solar system and everybody has a kind of a a staff with their planet symbol on it and they're circling Hodorowski who is the sun and he's just spinning in place and it's this kind of like whirling dervish thing that they have going on and we watch each one of the planets collapse out of exhaustion it was very striking image I like I said I wish that had made it to the final cut but as it was the rest of the journey is, is very visually and spiritually enlightening not only are they climbing the mountain, but they're on the boat. So they're they're getting to the island. They're trying to get to this island. And on the boat, they gather around the thief and they try to get him uh, to help him become more enlightened. And this is where the guy returns again. The as you were saying, the the uh, the, the dwarf who's you know got like um, deformed limbs. Tabletop Joe. Yeah, I guess so. And he represents. I guess maybe this like ego or part of the thief that he hasn't been able to let go of, maybe his past or something. Mm-hmm. So then he has to like throw him into the ocean. And then eventually they do get to the island and they cut off all their hair, they shave their heads, so they're all bald now. And they get to the Pantheon bar. Somehow they meet some guy in later hosen with a giant brandy <laughs> sniffer. <laughs> Like the minute they get there, he's and like I'm the Mister Rourke out. of the Holy Mountain. 
it's amazing. It's just amazing. Smile, everyone. Smile. So they get to the Pantheon bar and they're walking around. And to me, this kind of reminded me of there, there's a couple of things in here that I, I know this is going to be odd reference uh, that remind me of Monty Python. And in here, it kind of reminds me of the scene in uh, Life of Brian where they're going from like profit to profit to profit in like the market. And like one guy's talking to him. And then they go to the next one, and another guy's talking about something else, and another guy's talking about something else. And it's like each one represents some idea within this place. And it looks like they're in a graveyard or something. Yeah, he actually rented a graveyard in Mexico, and it looks like they were having a gigantic Beyond the Valley of the Dolls party on top of it during the scene. It's just really obscure. And I guess you could do that in the 70s, rent a cemetery. I wonder how much that runs here. Yeah, it's very, very strange. Yeah, the, the Pantheon bar is really interesting. I, I kind of thought maybe, you know, he had this big su- success with El Topo, and then all of a sudden, you know, he's... You know, now he he must have been hanging out with John Lennon because, you know, he helped finance some of this film and and the Beatles. And so he was probably at all these types of parties with, you know, all these figures. I don't know. One of these figures, you know, one I I, I think represents Alec Ginsberg and he kind of looks like Frank Zappa. And then the other one's like Timothy Leary. Like he's because I guess at this Pantheon bar, it's, it's everyone that's on this journey to the Holy Mountain, but they just stopped here. And they just decided not to leave. Ego and their fame stopped them from getting true enlightenment by going further to the Holy Mountain. You know, this is where they all just end up gathering, staying. And the guy with the later hosen comes out and yells at them as they're leaving. And he's like, you're losing. I wrote this down. You're losing by seeking higher plane. So basically he's saying, stay here and this is all good. You can have a party. But if you keep going, you're going to lose all this. What are you talking about leaving for? You got to stay and party. Yeah, exactly. But throughout the whole time, throughout the Pantheon bar, like every time someone stops them and talks to them, they oh, it's like they see through their bullshit and they want to just keep going further. You know, I love the one guy because we've got the guy who says that the Holy Mountain is in his words. Another guy who's saying the Holy Mountain is, you know, in drugs. And the last guy who's like, I can conquer the Holy Mountain and he can disappear through solid matter. But he can only go horizontally. He can't go vertically. And I love the goofy-ass sound effects whenever he disappears. <laughs> this crazy, like, superhero guy who's like, I can go through solid matter. <laughs> I kind of want a whole movie about that guy. It's very strange because in one of the deleted scenes, like, it was almost a religious picture of the Flash on the wall of this kid's room. Oh, yeah. And, and then you cut... You go back to Saturn, or I forgot which one where it was with the comic book, and now you have this guy, and he is like straight—he is a straight-up comic book character because that's like a comic book ability that he has because he shows it off, you know. Especially with the sound effects, you know, it's—it's it's so it's it, yeah, I, I love I love this part too. Well, when did he start in comic stuff? Because we know Hardarowski was a big comic guy. According to what we know, it was after when Dune failed, when he was still friends with Mobius, is when they decided to go forward and start doing comics. So, but you could still see they must have still, you know, they had some type of impact on him at this stage. If the Flash and that comic book image and this character, you know, to stick with that deleted scene real quick, it's like uh, it's I can't remember um, Clen. That's like his son in this room where it looks like his son has hired a prostitute and you know 
Jupiter gives the kid money and the kid just hands the money to this girl. And I like how that's the thing that they cut out because they were afraid people might have found it objectionable. <laughs> I mean, we were okay with the, with the like 10 year old prostitute where the guy pops out his glass eye and puts it in her hand. We're okay with that. But the kid with the prostitute in his room that was a little too much. We didn't want to go there. And the tiger milk scene coming up. Oh, yeah. The ocelot. Yeah, <laughs> that's fine. Guy's got half a beard. He's got two ocelots strapped to his his nipples, and he's spraying this guy in the face with milk. That's okay. <laughs> Which is by far one of the strangest images I've ever seen. We got the, the, the two cows humping. And the girl just getting this whole face full of white stuff and a fist coming into her mouth. That's okay. But the kid with the prostitute, no. Stay away. (laughs) (laughs) The guy hanging upside down with all the dead chickens. Yeah. So many just amazing images in this film. So once they leave the bar, they're still climbing. They keep climbing. They keep going. They keep going. Rock climbing, Carl. Rock Rock climbing, Joel. And it's like each of them is faced at some point, and you mentioned several of them already, is faced at some point with like either their worst nightmare or some sort of like mental thing or thing of the physical world. Like there's one guy who's like, there's all this money. There's, like I said, the sex thing. There's a fear kind of aspect. There's this dog fight. There's like all of this. Another castration with uh, like an old witch who's castrating. I believe it's the mother or son. But I might be wrong with the white roosters. Like, that's really disturbing as well. Yeah, we are definitely going through the roughest part of the journey where they're facing up to all their fears. And it seems like they're not successful, but apparently they are because I would, th- it looks like they're kind of dropping like flies, but they're definitely together as we get more towards the end of the film. It's the bad trip. Oh, definitely. And you would be too if you're an LSD watching this film. And a lot of the actors during this scene were on psychedelic mushrooms. Really? That's, that's what he said. He said that especially the one scene where they're at the temple, they're all crying and everything. He said they a lot of them were on were on stuff at the time. Well, I know he had problems with the actor who played the thief because he would go off and get high and that he couldn't do his lines and that kind of stuff, but that's not good, but the mushrooms at these other parts, that's that's okay because I guess that's just kind of more what the the scene called for. And I'm not being a, a smart ass, it just it's funny that the drugs were okay in some parts, but they're not okay in other parts just because of what the, the scene demanded. Uh, true. Yeah, good point. The 70s. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's all you have to say. Yeah. Enough said. <laughs> they get to a certain point near the, the top, and they can see up there that the, that the wise masters are around the table, and he says, meditate here for three hours, and then – you can go attack them and you will win, but I'm, I'm done. You don't need me anymore. And, uh, so he disappears. I'm done. So go ahead. Cut off my head. <laughs> yeah. So cut off my head and the head, his head becomes, uh, replaced with a sheep that basically is like a sheep blood fountain. And, uh, <laughs> and then they eventually get up the mountain to the table and they find that it's all just stuffed dummies except for the head of the table when they pull the back the hood and it's him hey. uh, i played a joke on you i made you come all the way up here 
And he sits down and he talks to him. He said, okay, well, yeah, there really is no big secret, but I do have a secret for you. All of this is artifice. What is reality? And he does this whole speech about reality and everything. Is this the end of our adventure? Nothing has an end. We came in search of the secret of immortality, to be like gods. And here we are, mortals. More human than ever. If we have not obtained immortality, at least we have obtained reality. We began in a fairy tale, and we came to life. But is this life reality? No. Like I said, spoilers. This is the only thing that I would think you could ruin the, in the movie, is the little bit of a, a surprise ending for this. And I kind of lost my shit. Not as bad as my wife, but I kind of lost my shit a little bit too when he just turns right towards the camera lens and says, It is a film. Zumba camera. And we just pull back <laughs> and we see that this whole time we're on a movie set. And he flips over the, the table the, with the nine-pointed star on it, flips that over. Which is, as far as I know, not in the great supercut that I saw recently of table flipping. And it should be because it is one of the greatest table flips ever. And that's it. Movie's over. You know what that ending reminds me of? What? Here's the second Monty Python reference. Yeah. The end of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Yes. Where, shut the camera off. That's it. It's over. <laughs> yeah, the, this ending really upset me when I first watched it. Like... Yeah, because it was because the movie was pulling so many strange emotions from me. It was like disturbing me, and it was just the drone of the movie, the atmosphere, just the sound, the sound design, everything. It was just the movie was like actually it got under my skin. It was creeping me out. And then we had images, dreams, photographs. I don't know. It just took me out of it, and I was really upset. <laughs> and then I actually, when I used to rewatch it when I was younger, you know, trying to understand it, I'd always just I'd avoid the ending. I, and then now, I guess, this time around watching it, I knew it was coming up and I was more uh, accepting to it, you know, and I, you know, I, I get it. I guess I don't know. I don't I don't I don't I can't say I get it because if you ask me to explain it, I can't. But I'm, I, I come to terms with it. Well, the ending for me doesn't bother me. As a matter of fact, I like the ending because the the ending to me, he's saying we must not stay here. Prisoners, we shall break the illusion. This is Maya. That it's now on us. He's throwing it back at the audience. He's saying, it's now time for you to go out and to explore. It's time for you to go out and find out what works for you. Don't look to me to give you the answer. I I brought them here, and this is all fake anyway. You know this is fake because it's art. But I'm just reminding you that it's fake, that this is all set up. And now it's time for you to just to go out and and go to reality. And that's basically what he's, you know, kind of hinting at at the end, I think, is, you know, it's time to move past the artifice and now move into reality and do the work in the reality. And and, and I actually like that ending, which is interesting because his original ending, supposedly, and he talks like about a couple of different endings, one on the commentary and then another in the deleted scenes where he wanted it to end in a Mexican restaurant with a woman giving a live birth to a baby. And he couldn't quite pull off getting a woman to give live birth to a baby in a Mexican restaurant so therefore he had to take this ending instead 
I wish I had your phone number back then because <laughs> the way you just explained it, I would have totally, you know, been like, uh, but I guess I was just on this journey and it wasn't what I was expecting. But like I said, now watching it years later, and like I said, you know, and then I kind of was more accepting of it. And, you know, we'll see on my on my next viewing. But, you know, but at first it was such a shock to me. I think why I liked it was that, like I said, it also played with convention and mm-hmm. it's much more abrupt in here than it is in Holy Grail, where in Holy Grail, there's like people looking for him and they're trying to figure out where, you know, Arthur is and all this stuff is going on. And and then eventually they shut down the film <laughs> at the end of Monty Python and Holy Grail. So t- to me, this is similar, although there's nothing that really leads you to that ending. There's no sort of seeing the seams of things to make mm-hmm. you go, ah, it may be leading in this sort of reflexive, self-reflexive, back-on-itself, snake-eating-its-own-tail kind of thing. No, you're right. I mean, because when you really think of it, how else can you really end it? <laughs> you know, it is, it, is, it, is, it, is a, it is a good ending to this film. Yeah, he, he said the other one would have been for all of them to levitate up into the sky. <laughs> that was, I think he said was another possible ending. Which later on made it into the Incal. They just needed a lot of helium balloons. <laughs> <laughs> and chairs. They could just sit in the chair. Yeah. And then the- I was disappointed the first time I saw this, too. And then, yeah, after reading about it and reading some of his explanations and just people talking about that this is him saying no matter how many people try to lead you somewhere, the answers are always going to be within you. And it's like, yeah, I, I kind of really appreciate and i appreciate that it is a little bit of a slap in the face that this ending does kind of just say everything that you just saw it's it's good to a point but really you need to wake up you need to do this on your own i definitely have a lot more respect for this ending now than i originally did because i felt i wouldn't say i felt cheated but i definitely was just like what like you couldn't figure out a better way to end this than that but also because we're so geared up to find out what that secret is at the end of the film you know we've got this velocity of everything that we have going is going to take us to that secret going to take us to the place along with these people that we've been following these frankly rather distasteful people after we've seen their backstories but nope we're not going to get that we're not going to get that answer and like i said i i like it no i like it now too yeah you know, we talked a little bit about some of the the symbols and stuff, and it's just there. There are so many symbols in this film, and just things that I never would have stuff that I'll never get, stuff that I just won't necessarily understand unless I sat down and had a conversation with Hodorowski to say, okay, what is this writing on this person? I mean, I understand some of the symbology of the the planet symbols and everything and, you know, seeing these throughout the stories of the, the planets and everything, but there's just so much stuff. And it is just so surprising to see the way that he mixes all of this stuff together to see him with the Tefella and the box on the head and the band around the arm and everything. And one scene and the, the um, Hebrew writing other places. And it's just like this whole mishmash of just so many things coming together. I'm sure there's stuff from 
Buddhism and Taoism and, and Shintoism and Zoroastrianism and stuff that I just am not that familiar with in here. You know, uh, of course, being someone from the West, I'm getting a lot of the Judeo-Christian kind of stuff, but there's just so much even on that level that I don't get. And I kind of respect that kind of again going back to this ending of you have to look within yourself because he has all of the quote-unquote answers in this film he has all of these different religions mixed up in here and and just all the different spiritual paths that you can travel but yet still gives us this whole you have to find it within you thing well to me it's almost a connective in that way to el topo because he goes to fight the gunfighters which I think is three, or there are four gunfighters in El Topo. And you can look at each of them representing the major religions, and then also the whole thing with spiritual quest in some way within El Topo and how you've got to rid yourself of these things, you know, bury the photo of your mother and your toy in the sand. Come on, we've got to go. You've got to evolve to this next level to be a man and all this. We talked about Dune a few months back, and... Yeah, there's actually there's things in this like symbols like, you know, like Rob brought up the tumor earlier and the tumor. It was a tumor in the back of the thief's neck. It was cut and they pulled out like a like a green squid or an octopus. And it and the tumor is a symbol for, you know, reborn. And then later on in Dune, he uses the, the tumor again during a Fremen ceremony where a woman has a tumor in her stomach. It's not a tumor. It's not a tumor at all. They wave an egg over it, and then they reach into her stomach, and they pull out the tumor, and then the tumor turns into a baby. You know, so it's just interesting. You see themes that stretch back to El Topo, and that you know he was even trying to put into Dune. It's just, yeah, it's just really fascinating, and it's just I, I got it. Kind of blew me away on because doing it for the show, and I had to just you know look deeper than I ever did at this film. It just it just blew my mind, just all the symbolism for like ego. And how much ego was a big part of this film, you know, like the frog and the pig grease represented ego. And like, Rob, what you talked about, you you know, it's just like when you were burning those bodies, you know, you cannot immortalize ego. You need to burn who you are for enlightenment. And it's just like all that stuff, like really struck me this time around, I guess, because being in Hollywood and in rising up with certain friends, then you just watch people who you once knew and you watch ego take over. (laughs) <laughs> you know, and it's just like watching it this time around. It's just you know, it was kind of like mind blowing for me. I was like, holy crap! I was like, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, don't, I don't want to. I'm sorry if I sound pretentious, but it was just, it was like a really cool journey myself watching it this time around. And I got to thank you guys for that. Well, that's the thing is that this film. It could have been so pretentious, and it could have just been like looking down its nose at everyone who watched it. And I don't feel that with this one at all. It feels like we are just as much a part of this film as the people that are on the screen. I feel like I'm very welcomed by this film. Even if it is so dense with the symbols and everything, it still feels like... Jodorowsky wants me to go on this journey with him with this film. It doesn't feel like he has put me at arm's length and saying, this is my art. You probably aren't smart enough to understand it. Instead, it feels like he is inviting me in and saying, if you get this cool, if not, I will help you. And it feels very inclusive that way. No, I mean, for how dense it is and all the stuff that's in there, I never feel that it is... 
um, at arm's length, like something, for example, that wouldn't be this packed with symbolism. Like, like I have a big problem at times with Michelangelo Antonioni films. They're just so cold, so distant. I don't care. And I think he wants you to feel that way. Like, La Ventura, like, people really like that movie, but to me, I like watch it and I'm kind of bored by it because I feel there's this distance with that film. And in this, I don't feel that at all. As a matter of fact, I think that if he did try to keep you at a distance, it would be the exact opposite of what his aim is. Where if you read anything or you listen to the commentary, his aim was to bring people in and to enlighten them, to give them something new, to change them in some way through film. And if he's keeping you at arm's length, then there's no way to do that. There's no way to give you that that change, that enlightenment, if you can't get close to the material. I guess it kind of goes back to that thing that I was saying earlier as far as like art films to me are tend to be so slow and ponderous. I mean, that to me is also kind of where Antonioni lives his life is much more in this navel-gazing kind of a way, whereas with this, it's just so fast-paced. I mean, there are so many quick cuts in this film, and it just feels like this... It's almost like an assault, but it, it, I don't feel assaulted by it, but it's just so visually dense and just so packed with information and just coming at me so much. You know, like Stephen has described this as being so hypnotic, and I definitely feel like that. It feels like I'm going along and just kind of tripping with this movie as we're moving from scene to scene, and it just – it's a good – journey it's a good trip that i'm on when i go through this film just because it is so much stuff and i'm just kind of being led through it all and i i trust my guide with this one because it's not like you know i i don't feel like and i guess maybe that ending was kind of a left turn and that's where you know we kind of chafed under that the first time but we feel I feel like I can really trust where Jodorowsky is taking me with this. And I guess maybe the first time I saw this, I felt like that ending was a misstep. But now it feels much more natural with the way that the rest of the film flows. Yeah, like I said, I can't now imagine it ending in any other way, you know? Well, the thing that makes me a little sad when I watch this movie, you mentioned how some of the things that were in here kind of spoke to Dune and how we saw some of the things from El Topo speak to Holy Mountain. It makes me even more sad when I watch Holy Mountain to see this just beautiful, beautiful film that's just so striking in so many ways and then think to myself, what would have Dune been like if he had been able to continue on this path? How gorgeous would that film have been? Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's sad to think about because you just see him grow so much as a director. It's like El Topo was like sixteen millimeter, right? Now this is thirty five millimeter, and then he was just going to grow even further with a bigger budget. To the day you guys could see the storyboards, and he was then going to even push the limits again. It was gonna he was going to grow so much more as a director, and what what he did with religion and symbols. Imagine him doing that deconstructing dune with his vibe and his ceremonies and his symbolism throughout that it's just uh it's very it's very heartbreaking dune is basically the making of a religion you know coming in and finding this messiah figure and everything so just it would have fit into his space so well with all of the stuff that he'd already been dealing with 
you know, I was saying before we started taping that I had to laugh when I was watching Holy Mountain and they're trying to break the stone. And it totally reminded me of what Lynch ended up doing with Dune, where he's trying to have these uh, the Fremen break the stone and Usul puts on the weirding module and just breaks it with a word as kind of like Hodorowski just hits it one place and break, shatters the stone. And it's just like, it made me sad again, thinking what would the Fremen have been like? What would have Paul's journey have been like? I can see the, the thief sharing some of the same learning that Paul would have had amongst the Fremen. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, and then like we also discussed and, and you kind of already saw a taste of the Fremen in, in El Topo anyway. And you just see how just beautiful and hypnotic the ceremonies in this film are when you would have saw like the Bene Gesserit ceremonies. And he just fits so perfectly in that world. It's just like when you read the first 100 pages of Dune, how how he just managed to make it so lived in Frank Herbert. But then, you know, then Jodorowsky took it himself and then just put his own spiritual spin into it and made his own lived in world. It was like a perfect fit for it. You know, it really was. It's, again, something so tragic. The thing that was interesting to me when we talk about how Dune didn't get made, and then for the longest time, as we talked about in the beginning, how this movie and El Topo were seen on these really shitty bootlegs because it was the only way you could get them. And at the end of the commentary that Jodorowsky does on Holy Mountain, he talks about why him and Alan Klein um, separated. And Alan Klein put his films under lock and key for basically 30 years and wouldn't let him out. And it all had to do with Alan Klein wanted Jodorowsky to do next after Holy Mountain. He wanted to do Story of O. And Alan Klein was like, I'm going to make a lot of money and this is going to be great and everything. And he didn't want to do it. He was just like, I have no interest in doing that. And walked away and met as your documentary shows how he went on to try to put together Dune. And when he did that, Alan Klein said, well then, you know, up yours and you'll never, I'm not releasing your films ever again. And they had this falling out for 30 years, which I didn't know that that was about. I didn't, in, in my readings, I, that had never come up that he was supposedly in line to do story of O, which had been done a few years after that. And I find that interesting too that just consider even for a minute that he did decide to do, you know, that it just imagine what he would have done with that. It would have been odd as well. <laughs> well, it's just so sad to me that didn't make another film for seven years. And after the glory that I really see with Holy Mountain, then he comes back with Tusk, which I don't know if you guys have seen that, but um, I'm sure you have, Stephen. The only copy I could ever get was like I had a, I had a rent for like cinephile video. It was like a no subtitled version of it, and that was the only way I could watch it. And you know, and it was a Jodorowsky film, so I had to watch it. It was I, I watched it later on, and yeah, unfortunately, I did not. I was I was very disappointed. I, I didn't really like it, but he's not very happy with it either. And and, and it is it is very. You know, you could just only imagine that, you know, he lost Dune and, you know, and, and he, he, he was setting out to make a children's film. And, yeah, it, unfortunately, I don't, I don't think he's very proud of it either. Yeah, the only version I've ever been able to see was like a C-cam French dub of it. And I just remember like some like some fast motion scenes and, yeah, it just was not 
what I was hoping for. It basically takes him 16 years to make a film that even comes close to the stuff he did in the early 70s, which is Santa Sagra, which is, to me, Santa Sagra can sit on the shelf next to Holy Mountain and El Topo. It's that good. Yeah, it's fantastic, but it does have uh, Claudio Argento's fingerprints on it, too. It, it is a Jodorowsky movie, but I always see it as a horror film because I always, you know, I don't know. I, I see this as, as a religious film. And I see Holy Mountain as this horror film, and I always see now El Topo as, a, as just, you know, just some type of Western. <laughs> El Topo is not a Western. It goes far beyond any Western. El Topo as a Western reminds me of of a Western the way that uh, another movie we've done on the show, Django Kill, is a Western. It's just this bizarro Western. It fits in to sort of the Italian Western model or spaghetti Western model, but it it is definitely not your standard <laughs> Western in that way. Yeah. Sorry, to go back to, to Dune really quick, the, the one other sad thing is, is like all, all the stuff with the alchemist and all the preparations and all that stuff, that you would have saw with the Bene Gesserits. Even the eye camera scene on the floor with the Bene Gesserits. It was, just imagine how he knew that alchemist. Just imagine what the Bene Gesserits inside the asteroid would have been like. You know, it's just, ah. <laughs> Once again, sorry, that popped in my head. No, you know, and he has no problem with bald-headed women and getting women to shave their heads, so would have been <laughs> all those ladies could have just easily donned the Bene Gesserit costumes and gone right for it. All right, so we are going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show. Let's prepare for a landing, right? Okay. In a 40G gravity atmosphere, strange thing happens to man's body and mind. Barry Sullivan and Norma Bengel take you into the most fantastic science fiction adventure ever filmed. Emergency! Emergency! Conditions desperate. Little chance of survival. Help us. Mark, look! What have you got? The galleon. Bert, get me a fix on this right now. Wes, Brad, controls. Planet of the Vampires. Harboring a form of life worse than death. Planet of the Bloodless. Creatures who take men's bodies, but attack like vampires. I'll tell you this, if there are any intelligent creatures on this planet... They're our enemies. In this outer space world, the living dead try to escape into life. Salas. No, just his body. And I'm just one of many beings on this planet. And we're fighting to survive. It's imperative that our race continue to exist. We arranged for several of you to kill each other so that we could take over your bodies. You are our last chance. No, never. We'll all of us give up our lives to save our own race. That's 
right. We're back next week with a look at Mario Bava's Planet of the Vampires. Be sure to join us as we're joined by special guest co-host Troy Howarth. And before we go, want to thank this week's special guest co-host Stephen Scarlatta for coming on with us. Now, Stephen, last time we talked, very special episode we did. Thank you for coming on, talking about Jodorowsky's Dune, which you put together as one of the producers. And it has just been released and should be in my mailbox by the time this podcast airs. On Blu-ray, I might add. So what's the latest with you, sir? Well, right now you can just catch me on Twitter as uh, XNeck, X. And I'm, I'm pretty cool. I follow back. I don't have ego. I learned from this film. I will follow you back. But uh, unfortunately, I mean, right now I'm, I have a couple of things I'm trying to work on, a couple of documentaries I'm still trying to get funding for, but don't really want to give out the idea yet <laughs> to throw out there. But I'm, I'm kind of working on a few things right now. I got in the air. I, I wish I could talk about it, but can't at this second. As for the release of Jodorowsky's Dune on DVD and Blu-ray, how do you feel about that release? Are you pretty happy with uh, how everything turned out? I have not seen it yet, but I'm looking forward to seeing it. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm actually looking forward. You know, they got all the materials, and um, I, they're just throwing it all together. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what they throw on there. It's going to be a surprise to me, too. So Even the co-producer of the film doesn't know what's going to be on the special DVD edition. <laughs> Do not know. There was a lot of research done in the process, so I'm curious to see what's going on. So let's see. If, if it's two discs it must and on Blu-ray, it must be awesome. I'm looking forward to checking it out. It'll be in my mailbox at, on the same day, so maybe we can have a, a little viewing party, Rob. There you go. All right. Well, hey, thanks again, Stephen, for taking the time to talk to us. And also thanks to Heather Lee Navarre. You can find out more about her and the Boston Tea Room over at our website, projection-booth.com. You can also find a link over to our iTunes page where you can leave us a review and a rating. And every single one of those helps us climb that holy mountain.
mystical weapon.
goodbye to the Holy Mountain. Real life awaits us. <laughs>